I'm Christopher Lydon, and this is Open Source in rural Ireland this time for family talk toward the end of an extraordinary life. Oh, wow. Out of one secret garden into another. Yeah, look at this. These trees on the right are in a very clear row, and they were presumably part of the planting in 1790. And they are linden. Yeah, they're called lime trees here, called linden in America. My brother Patrick was the youngest of six, the saint in our family as we had known all along, and invariably the brightest company. In our regular catching up by phone between his community farm in County Kilkenny and my base in Boston, he struck an odd note two winters ago. He said, Chris, I've aged more in the last 10 weeks than in the last 10 years. To walk 50 yards, he said, had become an ordeal. 100 yards, impossible. Soon enough, the villain turned up in a Dublin exam. It was ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, that slow, irreversible breakdown in the neuromuscular system. Typically, ALS spares the victim's thinking process and speech. Same time, it cripples the body. There was nothing to be done about this, except, I thought, record a Gabby memoir over Zoom, and then face-to-face on the porch of Patrick's little farmhouse in the town of Callan. Patty, my brother, just to remind you, you weren't picked out of a lottery here to do this. The reason everybody is here is that, and no blowing smoke at anybody, but you've lived a most amazing and beautiful life, Patrick. It's a spectacular example to me, to your sibs, to your colleagues, to your workers, to your classmates. Patrick was the brother who never had a salary or a personal savings account. His famous high school, Phillips Exeter in New Hampshire, gave him its highest award for a life non-sibby, not for self. He had found his match in Gladys Kinghorn from Aberdeen in Scotland, visionary and inexhaustible like himself. What they did together over 50 years across the southeast of Ireland was build a whole network of farms and school communities to support people with Down syndrome, autism, epilepsy. Standard behavioral treatment in Ireland and the U.S. means more and more control of wayward impulses. In Patrick's Camp Hill communities, inspired by the Austrian guru Rudolf Steiner, the alternative treatment is love and attention. Music became central in Camp Hill therapy. So did gardening, vegetables, and flowers. Patrick himself, in his last year on Earth, got hooked on growing hybrid flowers inside an ancient stone-walled garden. He was becoming a version of the great Luther Burbank in California a century ago. That lower yellow daisy is called Bophthalmum salicifolium, Dora. And the taller one is a perennial sunflower, the Helianthus. Gorgeous. Yeah, fantastic. Immediately I think of, you know, Luther Burbank. Would he have read this like a book or what? He would have read this like a book. In our porch talk, I wanted to hear what Patrick had learned about souls, about the times of his life, about making communities. I'm interested also in flashing back to those, the letters you wrote to Kate in the late 60s. You were approaching your 20s and planning your life. You had read Brothers Karamazov, you had fixed on Alyosha. You knew a kind of direction and a kind of style that was ahead. 
But stick with the times you've lived in, and me too. You grew up with rock and roll, with the Beatles, with The Who, with, I'm thinking, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for example, Muhammad Ali, Jimi Hendrix, the Civil Rights Movement, Kennedy politics, literary, artistic modernity. Pick out the outline of the times of Patrick Lydon. Well, <laughs> it's be a tearful narrative. Now, my tearfulness is not in the context of sadness, but of something that's emotive or touching. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a weeper too, so. <laughs> Our father had flu in 1918, which is kind of topical now. So he was part of this worldwide epidemic. His own brother died of it, and he was 19 or 20 years later, was diagnosed with post-encephalitic Parkinson's. But instead of succumbing to a lot of very harsh downward prediction of what his life was going to be like, our parents proceeded to have three more children, and he held on to his employment. In my understanding, a kind of as long as possible, but instead of just, I don't know, they engaged with alternative thinking about the social economy and homesteading and living a more natural life, and they moved to a tiny farm in West Duxbury, not the upmarket coastal part of Duxbury, Massachusetts, but back where there were Cape Verdean settlers and backwoods farmers. Yeah, of. working the cranberry bogs. Yeah, working in the cranberry bogs. In the 1940s, these are mm. Catholic people, working class father, very well-educated mother, uh, with a big family and a marginal kind of survival income. They moved and homesteaded under the influence of a couple named John and Helen Philbrick. He was a Protestant minister. The story I heard of John Philbrick was that he kept a sheep, he sheared the sheep, he washed the wool, he spun the wool, he wove the wool, and wore a suit made from... That's amazing. Years later, the pattern in this therapeutic farming was clear. Our daddy had taken it up of necessity. Able-bodied Patrick took it up for others, in imitation of his dad. I was born uh, when my mother was approaching 46. In Remember, this, she did not pay the obstetrician. He was playing golf that day, and she said, uh-uh, I have more experience at this stuff than you do. So. <laughs> I was born in this tiny farm, which was designed around my father's disability. I remember photographs. He had a chair at the either end of the rows in the garden. Right. So he'd hoe down the row and sit down in the chair to rest himself, gather up the strength to hoe back into the other chair. Mm. And it was a, a happy household. And I undoubtedly was um, had lots of advantages over my older siblings in that I was doted on by a big and yeah, complex um, family, four brothers and one sister. And we had this marvelous aunt. In every way, she was a successful person, but she was a benefactor to all of us. So we had a very fortunate 1950s stable America upbringing. And then to emerge into the 60s, yeah, I was 
12 or 13 when the Beatles broke through. I was completely open to all of that. And I went to a very good school from the 7th, 8th and ninth grades. You know, my mother engineered the very best in education for all of us, really. We had everything but income. Yeah, true. <laughs> that was never said, but making money was not a thing of any attraction to anybody in our family. I mean, making right. money, some people did it, some people didn't. But to write a book, now... Or to, to be a priest, or a <laughs> teacher, or a doctor. That, yeah. that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also culturally open, and it affected us. The college board exam was just becoming refined as a sort of finder of talent all over the place. We would not have gone to big university places in another era. Along came women in the late 60s, early 70s at the big institutions. It was an incredibly confident, expansive time. And it trickled down on us, even without an interest in money. We knew there was going to be opportunity out there. Absolutely. Not every generation grows up that way. No. I was turning 10 in the summer of the election in which JFK was nominated the Democratic candidate. Our father, in particular, was a, a very close follower of politics. He was a Boston Irish Catholic. He had seen Al Smith come close in 1928, but not get nominated because he was a Catholic, presumably. So that sense of liberation, we were far, far from the class of JFK, but JFK was one of our own seriously one of our own. You know, mm. it, it was deep that JFK could be the Democratic nominee. I mean, being a Republican in our family was like being a Martian. And that campaign, his kind of personal genius, charisma, that for me as a 10-year-old, I wasn't thinking about my career really, but I kind of assumed I'd be going into public life, mm. either a politician or yeah, public service in some broader sense of the forming of our society. But then in 1968, the Vietnamese War, the racial conflict in big cities, and a kind of an awareness of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation, the development of the civil rights movement. Yeah, you know, Eisenhower the warning of the military-industrial complex, a darker side of that post-war optimism opportunity was emerging. But when I read this book, The Brothers Karamazov, which is long and complex, but the moral challenge of what to do with one's own life in the context of injustice, human suffering, mm. eh, Public service began to look hollow very, very quickly, in a matter of months, or a matter of weeks, really. It became clear to me that I was going to seek other ways forward that would address a dilemma of a white, young, able, you know, opportunity-driven person who did not want to engage in the military-industrial complex that led to an imperialist, racist war in a society where my skin was white. So I, how do you orient to a huge black underclass trying to gain equality 
it was just full of dilemmas that I decided I would need to address in the action of my own life. I remember when you got into Karamazov, it was an absolute watershed outside as well as inside your head, but you used to walk around in New Hampshire with that book next to your heart, and it was Alyosha. It was that pulsing seminarian idealist brother in his interviews with Father Zosima and all that. But the minute I got stuck into that book, I just completely latched on to. And I just finished rereading it near the end of my life. And what fascinated me and really gripped me was the debate in Alyosha to do with this monk, Zosima, and his brother, Ivan, who poses impossible moral questions to him. And God then, is dead, all is permitted. Yeah. You know, there isn't one message of Brothers Karamazov. The whole idea is that there are three and a half brothers, and they all represent very different narratives about human life. Three different faces of Dostoevsky himself, I mean... Yeah, he's exploring his own conflicting attitudes toward life and being a person in the context of these brothers and their really dreadful father. What that arose in me was that the way forward was not going to be from A to B to B to C to C to D, being Exeter, going to Yale. Yeah, that something was going to veer off the kind of moral call of Zosima, who realizes the folly of what he's doing and then changes his life completely. Yeah, that there was some change in my life that needed to happen. I needed to engineer that, and I didn't know how to do that. The star that blazed into Patrick's life about then was the pro-hockey sensation Bobby Orr, 18 years old on the Boston Bruins. He was the selfless defenseman who scored and fed other scorers. To Patrick, Bobby Orr looked like Alyosha Karamazov on skates. Essentially, he made a very a very good but rather ordinary player scoring champion by setting him up, mm. gave goals to Phil Esposito. And that had a particular conjunction with the figure of Alyosha, who is not an egoist, but finding a way forward on that basis. And at the same time, I had my first serious girlfriend, a person of tremendous internal virtue, a creative, insightful, quiet person who, mm. yeah, also represented something of a, an unexplored, undiscovered interior quality. Mm. And so all of those influences arrived kind of just as I was about to finish school. Yeah, or am I going to find some other way? The situation in Vietnam is not, there's no way that an honest person can condone this at all. Some radical other stance mm. has to be taken. And racism, yeah, there are deeper issues there that are not going to be addressed by a presidential policy. What are we going to do about this? So life went on from there. In the Brothers Karamazov, but even more intensely in, in this very short story of Dostoevsky, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man is about a man who's lost his way in thinking and is going to shoot himself when he goes home. And he's bought the gun, and he's going to end his life. And he's confronted in the street by a girl, 
a traumatized girl, and he doesn't know what has traumatized her, but she's a waif, she's poorly dressed, she's cold, and she's looking to him for help. And he shuns her, rejects her, and goes home, and before shooting himself, falls asleep and has this dream of being on another planet where people are different. But that gesture, what does the individual who's thinking in a positive direction, what do you do about, yeah, what are you going to do today, and are you going to help that girl? You know, I was a, a kind of idealistic young intellectual in forming. I had never really done any work. I hadn't really ever been helpful to anybody. This is also a period, though, when you're writing endless letters to... Girlfriend? Girlfriend of your dreams and a spectacular woman, and she's sent the letters back to you just recently, and you said to me, it wasn't just pitching compliments to a girl, it was sort of outlining your life at the age of 18, 19, and uh, there's a book there, the portrait of yep. somebody or other as a young man. Yeah, it was a... When I realized I was mortally ill, I wrote to her. I haven't been in contact with her for more than 20 years. You know, I, I'm vaguely aware that she lives in New York, she's an architect. I wrote to her out of gratitude that in that transition from a kind of being a, a connected member of a upwardly rising future of American youth to being disaffected from all of that, I was really, really grateful that I had a, a companion, a sole companion, um, who was my girlfriend, but much more than a girlfriend, really. The curious thing was that I had realized at the time, or pretty close to the time, that you know my little breakthrough into journalism, my first publicly written thing was a byline in the New York Times mm. when I was 18 years old. And they didn't know I was 18. Well, they knew I was your brother and Michael's brother, that I covered Woodstock for the New York Times when I had just turned 19. When you've got a byline in the New York Times, you can trade yourself as <laughs> a, a journalist. You know, Kate and others of my contemporaries, I had suddenly jumped into this kind of success. Whereas I was interested in leaving that and exploring something completely off camera, under the radar, different. And she was a, a quiet, understated, very gifted young woman. And she decided that she wanted to be a success. And mm -hmm. she went to the Harvard Graduate School of Design and became an architect and married one of two or three of the most famous architects in the world, and lived in an apartment in New York in which everything except for the floorboards was white. Mm -hmm. Lived this kind of aesthetically hyper-refined, and I was weeding vegetables in a, <laughs> in a wet garden in Ireland, and that's what I wanted. So her trajectory went from seeing me rising, she went up, and me seeing her going up, decided to go down, <laughs> or out, or away, or something. And I, I don't regret it for a minute. I feel grateful to so many people and to so many circumstances, but most of all, I feel grateful for some benevolent guidance that led me to Camp Hill, mm. but also to Gladys. We shared a kind of 
cause and explanation of values and explanation of spiritual questions and daily operational questions and values questions and interpersonal questions. And we had a family of four children, and that was an unbelievable blessing, really, to find a soulmate who was our relationship. It was challenging in that we were doing this together at an extraordinary level. Well, I'm very grateful to what Kate offered me as a, an opportunity to become something that wasn't so obvious. But I'm really grateful to whatever brought Gladys and me together and then that we've shared a life that we both found really interesting mm. and engaging and worthwhile. Yeah, kind of personal engagement in the context of something much bigger uh, that was really incredibly nourishing. Mm. It gave us hundreds, hundreds of friends. It's not easy to imagine how that could have been otherwise. Somebody's observed that one of the great things you and Gladys share is the personal history of being incredibly doted on, youngest, favorite child. I can testify, I mean, Mr. Herrick would stop the bus, the school bus, and we would run across Franklin Street, and the race was to be the first one in to greet Joe, as he was known then, in the playpen, when you were a year and a half, two years old. The one who got the first smile from you won the contest. That's one thing. The other thing was, of course, the devotion between our mom and dad was extraordinary, not least because he was so severely handicapped by Parkinson's through all the life I remember, but to the end and long after daddy died. Right around here, mom would take a walk with me and she would poke me and say, I hope you realize, Christopher, that your father was a great man, and she meant it. The kind of interior quality of yeah. a person didn't depend on your career, and you've reminded me recently, him with vigor hammering the table saying, you don't have to have a college education to live a good life. I remember it like it was yesterday. No, that was an incredible challenge. I mean, I think there was a little, little ego contention there with Mum, who had graduate <laughs> degrees, Harvard and Chicago. Yeah. yeah. He left school at the eighth grade, but he meant it. And besides, it's true. I want to stick with one point about community, because I think it's actually very, very much alive in 21st century America, 2021. This whole matter of the organization of society in families, marriages, capitalism, corporations, money, quality, inequality. I find people talking about it, people looking with great dissatisfaction at the way we are organized now, politically, socially, intellectually, and looking for new modes. And you've done a terrific exploration over 30 plus years of how you build a community. What have you learned about community? I think I've learned a lot but how able I am to express that in words. There isn't one rule for a community. The general idea is the values of the French Revolution, freedom, equality, and brotherhood, or sisterliness, or brotherliness, belong to different aspects of how we are living together. 
in the question of the individual identity or belief or kind of spiritual quality of each person, its right to uphold freedom. The individual is a free individual. But in our relationships with each other, we're not free. We are bound by a sense of human equality. And it's not possible to exercise my freedom on you. There, we are equal. But in ourselves, we are free. But then in the economic relations, or to do with work, or money, or kind of our economic life, the best thing is to share. For me to look at your need to look at my need in the light of your need. Mm. And we can do that by being generous to each other, which is a different thing than being equal. So in our form of community, we didn't think that everybody would have an equal amount of money. Yeah, and that if a person had six children and another person had one child, it wasn't appropriate. If they were doing the same job, they'd have the same income. Or that if a person in their individuality really wanted to be very well dressed and the other person didn't care about how they dressed that that was fine that you would say what you in your individuality really need is to be beautifully dressed and that costs more money <laughs> and that I'm happy in rags and I don't need that money so we can find that the integrity of the individual in relation to our equal capacity to be involved with each other but then we can recognize each other's needs. That was how we looked at it, and that seemed to me, seemed and seems to me, very positive. And, but the bigger question now, and it becomes unbelievably confronting in the world of the environment, is that the common, what we have in common, needs to be balanced in a very, very strong way with this individual freedom that if we all say, well, that's my freedom to go and burn oil, it's just not going to work. The whole house is going to burn down. So how are we conditioned among each other in this recognition of the individuality, the spiritual integrity of every person, and their equality in social relationships, but in our collective responsibility, we can do this, but only if we really see the importance of that for everybody. Yeah, those things add up to me, to my experience of community. Yeah, the environmental catastrophe that's already unfolding, a sense of community is the only thing that's going to get us through it. Through living with people who the world might have called disabled or whatever, I take a lot of that with a grain of salt. We've struck in recent years on the idea of a person with support needs which we all have support needs, but it doesn't reflect on the individual so much, maybe. But I met a whole lot of extraordinary human personalities, one of whom was a young woman who was from Limerick. She never lived with us full-time, but she used to come, when her parents would be going for a holiday, she would come and spend a holiday with us. She was a most extraordinary individual, very bright in ways, but eccentric. She had a, a persecution complex. She had a kind of ego need to be recognized and esteemed, which was fine. But the consequences, when that didn't happen, could be difficult. When a new person arrived, it was very important for her to be introduced as a social equal. But she was also a very acute observer. 
and <laughs> you arrived, and after a few minutes, I said, Michelle, I'd like to introduce you to my brother. And this is my brother Christopher, Michelle Thompson. She shook her hands and said, whatever. And uh, after a few minutes, I said, well, Michelle, what do you think? He said, well, he's better dressed, but you're better looking. <laughs> <laughs> Which always gave me an upper hand with you. You mentioned catastrophe. You're reminding me of John Kennedy's American University speech in which he had this rather remarkable group of lines. He said, in the final analysis, we're all citizens of a small planet. We breathe the same air. We cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. Almost 60 years ago, he wanted us to get over our thing about Russians, he said if the United States had lost comparably in World War II, basically everything north and east of Chicago would have been a parking lot. I mean, it was just devastation on that level. You know, at the time, you could have said that I was a dropout. I, I dropped out of university. I never completed a degree. I emigrated, and I lived with no visible income for 40 years. I, I, I left the kind of mainstream, perhaps. So I don't see it that way. But in hindsight, JFK saying that in the 1960s, but the mainstream pursued churning out internal combustion engines in Detroit, churned out wars in obscure places where the people's skin was darker, that the mainstream did not cop that some fundamental changes were required. You know, the Cold War continued for 20 years after that. This friend of mine at Davis now says, people are now saying what you did on the margins, you encouraged students to keep their own gardens and experiment with other kinds of plants that produce other kinds of agricultural virtue. People are now saying that was a really good thing that you did. <laughs> but it was very marginal at the time. You know, modern agriculture in Ireland is hurtling down the road of how many cows can we possibly milk to maximize our income with milk? And can we build mega cheese factories to sell cheese to the world? Whereas everybody is saying it's dawning, and it's dawning on individual farmers, milking more and more and more cows is an environmental disaster. Mm. So. JFK in 1962 or three, yeah. you know, how are we going to change our diet and change our farming approach so that the planet is going to survive? We're not at the 11th hour, we're at the 11th hour and 59th minute, or it's probably after midnight. And I think that the, the environmental, the transformation of attitudes in the face of unprecedented fires, unprecedented floods, I hope the message is going to get through. The soul of Patrick Joseph Lydon Jr. left this earth on January 18, 2022. Surrounded by family, he had said he saw a gateway forward and he was ready to go through it. Thank you, Gladys. Thank you, Patrick Lydon. Special thanks to the Irish filmmaker Eamon Little who recorded the sound of this podcast with Curious Dog Films of Dublin. He is making a feature documentary on Patrick Lydon titled 
born that way.